is Changing the Coalfields. My name is Brandon Dennison. I'm the CEO of Coalfield Development, and I'm really excited this week to have Leisha Johnson with us. Leisha, Leisha is the executive director of the Mingo County Redevelopment Authority, a close partner of Coalfield Development, and a, definitely a personal friend of mine. So, Leisha, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Brandon. It's an honor and a privilege. I'm always, I told um, JD earlier, you always know that I can't say no uh, anytime <laughs> to do anything because I love the work that you do and I love being one of your partners. Yeah, vice versa. And we've, we've, we'll get into this later, but uh, we've done a lot of work together, some really innovative projects. Yeah. So, Leisha, were you born and raised in, in West Virginia? I was actually in West Virginia. Yes, I was born in Logan County, uh, but raised in Mingo County my whole entire life. I came from, um, you know, working class family. My mother was a legal secretary and my dad was a meat cutter for, um, you know, my whole childhood. I was a first generation college graduate. Neither of them, you know, had ever had the opportunity to go to college in uh, you know, back then, all of those years ago, I don't care to tell my age, um, <laughs> when, you know, when kids were coming out of high school, it was really unfortunate that you didn't really have a lot of direction in terms of, you know, career opportunities. And so I just knew that I wanted to go to college um, so that I would have more opportunity than my parents had, uh, even though I appreciated the hard work that they did. But really didn't have um, much conviction about, uh, you know, the direction that I wanted my life to take. So, I just, you know, elected to to get a business degree, um, and it wasn't even until I started college at WVU in 1984 um, that I decided to choose, you know, a focus in finance. And uh, even though I haven't really done anything in that regard, you know, the business, um, the bachelor's in business administration background has really kind of um, informed my career choices along the way. So, and growing up in, in Mingo, was that, were you in the Williamson area? Started out in the Williamson area and the 1977 flood um, caused us to move to the Lenore area. My grandmother lived there in Lenore and um, had a significant amount of property. We lived in a single wide trailer at Chatteroy and when we first moved into that trailer park in the early 70s, the, the owner of the park said, you may want to put your uh, trailer up on an extra block because sometimes the water gets high. So my dad elected to put the trailer up on five blocks instead of the four that the other trailers in the park had had positioned themselves on. And we were only like an inch from being flooded during the Whoa. 77 flood when every other trailer in, in the in the park had gotten flooded. Yeah. So that was just kind of our cue to, you know, to go somewhere where we could feel Find higher ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where we could feel safer from that. And so mom and dad were in a situation where they were able to build then and my grandmother gave them the property. So we built a nice home there, and then I spent the rest of my childhood in, in Lenore. And, you know, I'm so thankful for the time that I was able to spend with my grandmother there. My grandfather, and that was my maternal grandmother, my grandfather had passed away when I was only three from Black Lung. He had worked for Island Creek Coal Company over on 22 Mine Road, which coincidentally is where, you know, the Redevelopment Authority's Harless Industrial Park is now. So it's funny how you know, full circle, full circle. Yeah. And when I first started working for the redevelopment authority, my dad 
wanted to go over there with me to the industrial park one day to see if he could recognize anything. And it was completely unrecognizable. He had no, he couldn't even tell where his house once was. But, um, but anyway, having, having the opportunity to be raised there with my sweet little grandmother, she was all of four foot 11 and the quintessential grandmother, you know, who baked all the time. She cooked all the time. There were three, you know, hot meals on the table all day long. And it, it was she really who taught me, you know, the values of, of loving people unconditionally and, and showing selflessness. And, and, you know, she's been gone for 15 years now and I, I miss her greatly, but I, I still, you know, thank the Lord every day for all that she was to me and that she'll forever be to me. Did you grow up in the church? Not entirely, not until high school. She used to try to get me to go to church with her and I'd go on occasion and, and, you know, but, but mom and dad really didn't encourage it. And then mom and I started going to church and and I was saved when I was in high school, just like most kids do, you know, kind of fell away uh, when I was in college because, you know, too many things stand in the way of, uh, you know, of, of a good relationship with the Lord and, and so I, you know, slipped away from um, a good relationship with God for almost the whole time that I was in college. And I'm not proud of it, but he never left me and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, has protected me along the way. I, um, when I graduated from college, I went to work for the West Virginia legislature and I had, I started out as a um, per diem employee working for working during the legislative session and then ended up working, trans, transitioning into um, a legislative auditor position. So it was a really good opportunity for me early on to get to know a lot about how the legislative process works from, you know, both budgeting and policy making, and that, you know, those, that experience is, you know, has been beneficial. How does that place work, Lisa? <laughs> well. <laughs> Enlighten me. <laughs> well, that was then. All right. <laughs> this is now. <laughs> Yeah, it would be nice to really put, you know, put your finger on that pulse, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would be. But I, you know, I, I really, I was really enjoying that work and loving being in Charleston until, you know, a personal tragedy struck. And it was in 1989, I'd only been there a year, when I was diagnosed with malignant melanoma. And, um, you know, at the age of 23, I had a doctor to tell me that I had a 95% survival rate that I was really lucky that we'd caught it earlier early. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> you mean there's a 5% chance that I could die from this? Because, you know, I was 23. I was right out of college. I didn't really know much about cancer. I'd never dealt with it in my family or anything. And, and he said, yeah, we've got to, we've got to mitigate this. And so um, it was a 0.1 of one millimeter spot on my forearm. And, um, and a lot of that was due to excessive tanning when I was in high school, but it was also due to overuse of the tanning bed because tanning beds were really popular then. And so I had the surgery. Um, it was a successful surgery, got it all, um, had a skin graft from my right thigh that was as painful really as, you know, what they had to remove from my right forearm. It was a five-day stay in the hospital, pretty pretty significant surgery. And uh, the recovery was long and hard. Uh, the pain was just unbearable, but I have zero pain tolerance. And I just, 
when I tried to go back to work four or six weeks after that, I just was not in a good mental place. I was really having a hard time accepting the fact that something like that had happened to me and that life was just so fragile. And mm. so I needed nothing more than to be back home uh, where with my parents and my grandmother. And so I went back home, you know, it, just knowing that that would only be temporary because, you know, what college graduate, you know, Mingo County born and raised wouldn't want to be in Charleston as opposed to being back in, in Mingo County. But the Lord had other plans for me. Um, so I um, went to work for a local bank. You know, there weren't a lot of job opportunities outside of the mining industry here back right. in the in the 80s. And so I went to work for a local bank. Did that for about a year until I um, met my husband, my now husband um, of 30 years. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary. Yeah, yeah, this year. So it's been a it's been a a really fun journey. But uh, so I met him and, and after a brief six month whirlwind of a romance, we got married. <laughs> yeah, my parents were not at all happy about it. They felt like <laughs> jumping into something too fast. But, you know, when you know, you know. And yeah. and so we've had we've had beautiful marriage and, and have one you know daughter who, you know, I'm incredibly proud of. She's a couple of semesters away from her Ph.D. in mechanical engineering. But. Um, so I went to work for Massey Energy um, after I left the bank just because, you know, I, I needed we needed more income in our family. Ronnie was a full time fireman uh, for the city of Williamson. It was at the time one of only about six paid fire departments in the state. Okay. And um, so I went to work for Massey Energy in the land management department and worked there for 13 years in uh did a lot of different things there. Um, you know, it, it, I, I got a lot of good education in terms of, you know, legal contracts uh, that have been very beneficial to the work here that I do at the Redevelopment Authority. Um, but that work, you know, it, it, it was a coal company and, and it was very demanding. Uh, even in land management, we were managing over 2000 leases with probably 10,000 lessors that we were responsible to on a monthly basis. And then um, then I ended up doing some special projects, community type projects, the uh, Mate One Depot replica over in Mate One. Oh, yeah. And one of the projects that I spearheaded um, at, at, you know, the chairman's direction. And so that was that was a really eye-opening experience for me by the time I'd been there at the coal company for about 13 years and you know my child was growing up out from under me and I wasn't spending nearly the time with her that I felt like I should have days were getting longer and the work that I'd done you know in the town of Matewan over there just was so much more fulfilling and so Uh, By chance, I had gotten to know Mike Witt, who was the Redevelopment Authority's original and and first executive director. Um, I had gotten to know him because he and I had been collaborating on some easement agreements that he was trying to secure for the Hatfield-McCoy Trails Authority. Because a lot of people don't know, but Mike's work with the Trails Authority was very instrumental in the formation of the trails in general. Um, so the redevelopment authority, we, what, what major Southern West Virginia economic development project was Mike Witt not involved. With, I know, I know. Course. I mean, it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I really didn't know at the time just how fortunate I was going to be to get to come to work for someone like him. And, 
you know, I've, I've been here longer since he passed away than I was before he passed away, which seems impossible to me because I worked for Mike for eight years. Um, you know, he had an opening here and I called him one day and I said, Mike, you know, I'm just burning out here and, and I know the money's probably significantly less, but is there any way that, you know, you'd consider me to come to work for you? And, and he said, Alicia, honestly, I thought about giving you a call, he said, but I didn't want to do that, you know, to Mr. Blankenship or to George Farley, who was my immediate boss. He said, I just don't want to take people away, he said, and I didn't know if you weren't aware of the opening or if you'd even be interested, he said, but let me let me get you scheduled for an interview. And the interview went incredibly well, and we were just a really good fit for one another. And, and he told me from the very beginning, he said, you know, I I see in you, um, you know, the same passion for Mingo County that I had when I first took this job. He said, and one of these days when I'm long gone, I'd, I'd love to see you heading up the redevelopment authority. And so these years later, here I am. And uh, but gosh, what we wouldn't give to still have Mike with us. You know, he's been gone since 2011. This year will be 10 years that he since he passed away, you know, of kidney cancer and we still talk about him every single day. We still miss him every single day. And, you know, the, the, uh, his fingerprints are everywhere. They really are. Mingo redevelopment. So for folks who don't know, you know, each county in the state has some sort of an economic development office, or most of them do. Mingo's is really looked to as exemplary, truly, as, as one of the better ones. Mike set it off on the right foot. And Leisha, truly, genuinely, you've, you've continued that tradition of excellence. You've kept it top tier. Uh, you really have. What is it? What are some things that you all have done differently? Do you think that have, that have made it so effective? Um, you know, I think that we were created as a redevelopment authority rather than an economic development authority because there was going to be, we, they recognized, you know, Mr. Harless was one of the founding members. Buck Harless was one of the founding members of the redevelopment authority and his vision, you know, for, you know, economic prosperity was just incredible. It really was. And um, so he, it, it really was Mr. Harless and Terry Sammons and Ben Hatfield and, and Dan Moore and some others, James Simpkins, who were our, our founding members who felt like that the opportunities that, you know, were ahead of us were uh, opportunities that, that could be leveraged on, on post mine sites, uh, which at the time were considered blighted. And so we, we fit better into that redevelopment definition than we did economic development because, you know, we were going to have the opportunity to transform some, some, some mine scarred blighted lands into economic opportunities. And that's, these are strip mine mountaintop removal sites. Primarily. Yeah. Primarily. You all look, at you worked with the coal companies before the mining even started or as it was starting to say when this process is over what are some end uses that would really benefit the community and the local economy right yeah and you know every coal producing county in the state has a land use master plan that is a west virginia legislature approved plan that would allow them, um, you know, to partner with coal companies and land companies to identify post-mining uses uh, other than what the DEP calls um, 
approximate original contour because traditionally with with surface mining sites, when a mine site is reclaimed, um, the regulatory bodies require that it goes back to approximate original contour. And coal companies, you know, will list their post-mining use as, you know, forestry or just approximate original contour, which are not beneficial reuses in terms of economic development. So, Mingo County Redevelopment Authority, we started. And by the way, it may not be actually possible, right? I mean, to say like we're right. going to put it back to just before us like it was before. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, just to some standard, to some prescribed standard by the regulatory bodies. But what I think what the Redevelopment Authority has done so well when we started collaborating with coal companies and land companies, realizing that. If we identify, let's say, the Mingo County Air Transportation Park, we identified early on, prior to mining ever taking place, the need for a new general aviation airport in Mingo County. We partnered with the coal company and the land company that were going to be doing the mining there, identified what the configuration of that airport would look like post-mining, brought in the regulatory bodies that would have otherwise overseen both the mining and the construction of the airport. So not only was DEP and OSMRE involved, but the FAA was involved as well. And so we were able to, the coal company agreed at that point to, while mining was taking place, to construct, to rough grade, um, you know, the landscape of the airport, the taxiway, the runway, and all of the development so property so around it. Yeah. And then, you know, at the end of that mining. This, if you would have had to wait on federal funds to do this. It would have never. Tens ever, of millions of dollars in regulatory yeah. delays. and Yeah, it would have never and, gotten done. We estimate, you know, 35 to $50 million worth of material that was moved. Incredible. During that during that project. And so at the end of that project, um, you know, the coal company applies for a permit variance um, that allows the redevelopment authority then to become the owner of that property at no cost whatsoever to the taxpayer. And so that property gets turned over to us, you know, in this configuration um, that's ready to be fine, you know, for final grading and paving and all of the FAAs to all of the FAA specification and the FAA, because they were a part part of our public-private partnership from the very beginning, you know, they had already committed the funds to complete the project. So then the coal company gets an early bond release of its reclamation bond because it has provided this property to us in, you know, the form of an economic reuse rather than, you know, just converting it to approximate original content. Everybody's better off here. Everyone wins. Everyone wins. And so, you know, we pretty much have we've we've been um, we've been so successful in in establishing. I'm sorry to uh, I hate to interrupt you, but the I guess any county could have done this. But the difference was the local leadership, right? That in Mingo County, some key local leaders from different sectors stepped up and had the foresight to look several moves ahead. And and really do it right. And we had and we had, you know, those the ability to foster those partnerships. You know, we had coal companies that were willing to be, you know, to partner with us in in that regard. You know, Mike and I, we talked to the mining engineer almost daily about, Mm -hmm. 
you know, he would have questions, you know, because the mining engineer, it, it was a it was a heavy lift for the coal company and not every of coal course. was willing to do it. You know, the mining engineers all of a sudden became airport design and construction engineers, which was a heavy lift for them. But they outside were outside the box. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, we were on the phone with those engineers and, and the coal companies personnel on nearly a daily basis, just making sure that we were facilitating all of those regulatory requirements and specifications that were coming down for the FAA so that at the end of the mining project, we had, you know, we had an asset that was ready to be transferred over, one that the FAA could say, okay, you know, we can, you can contract the completion of this as an FAA approved airport. And, you know, so as a result of that now, we have a state-of-the-art 5,000-foot runway up there with wind instrumentation, lighting, fencing, power. Um, You know, it's about a $10 million FAA investment. The uh, Mingo County Airport Authority has about a $1.5 million investment, and and West Virginia Aeronautics has another about $1.5 million investment, and we're constantly still pursuing, you know, federal funding to complete, you know, the infrastructure up there. And, and, and even though, you know, I, I tell these stories about, you know, the successes that we've had and the opportunities that lie ahead for Mingo County because we've had so many visionaries and we've been so successful in forming these partnerships that, you know, not only are we able to plan for a future beyond coal, um, but it's one that has been provided to us by the coal industry and by the land companies that we've worked with. So I think we'll be able to, you know, it, it's our hope that we preserve that heritage even going forward as we transition to a post-coal economy. But, you know, it still is a long, long road ahead because despite the fact that, you know, the coal company has made so much in-kind contribution to these assets that we call post-mine land use projects, there still, you know, are tens of millions of dollars worth of access and infrastructure development that need to be done to make these real viable sites for economic transition. And, and we're in the process of doing that now. And, you know, were it not for federal partners like USDA and, and specifically EDA, we wouldn't be able to, to finish these projects the way that we are. For someone who's not from Mingo County or Southern West Virginia, can can you just Paint the picture in your lifetime, sort of how mighty coal was and where coal's at now and, and where how our economy's changing. Yeah, you know, Mingo County, we had for years referred to ourselves as the heart of the trillion dollar coal field for decades. Trillion with the T. Trillion with the T, yes. For decades, we were one of the top three and at the very least five coal producing counties in the state. That meant, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of not only, you know, income that was being earned by the miners and, 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 you know, not just in extraction, but in transportation and in supply chain businesses, Mm -hmm. but the, the, the coal severance tax and, you know, the, what coal provided to communities in terms of, you know, emergency services and public services as those as those taxes were turned around. And, and you know, I always have had somewhat of a sore spot with the way that 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 coal severance tax was structured, because all 55 counties in the state have benefited from coal severance taxes. 
but not all 55 counties, you know, are have have minors that have committed their livelihoods and their lives and their health and their safety, you know, to mining the coal that's powered the nation and it's powered two world wars. And and um, so I, I always feel like we got a little bit of the short end of the stick, you know, the coal producing counties that were generating the most. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But but at any rate, it's just a testament to the magnitude of, you know, what coal has meant to us. Um, you know, there, there were years when Mingo County's um, unemployment rate was among the lowest in the state because, again, if you weren't mining coal, you were transporting it, whether you were a truck driver or you worked on the railroad or you were in a machine shop or a welding shop or you were a clear cutter or, you know, any of the other numerous high paying jobs. Oh, very high paying. And so you've gone from one of the, for decades, one of the lowest unemployment rates in the state to one of the highest in the country, right? I mean, top 20 list of counties with unemployment. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think that, that, that certainly is attributed to the fact that coal mining has been so generational, uh, you know, and, and, you know, fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers have done it. You know, my grandfather was a coal miner and, and died at the age of 55 of black lung. And, um, but, uh, and thankfully my dad didn't choose that, that career path. Um, you know, I was able to have him until he was 77 years old. But, um, you know, I think that with, with the opportunity, you know, that was ahead for so many men and even, you know, women were coming out of high school, not many, but mostly young guys were coming right out of high school, not even having to pursue any type of higher education whatsoever. And, you know, could make $80,000 a year. And some of them even more than that, depending upon, you know, how much training internally with that coal company they were able to undergo you know, people that became trained as roof bolters or long wall operators, uh, you know, they were $120,000 a year 15 years ago. And, you know, with not a, not a college credit to their name. And, and, you know, so they weren't only able to provide, you know, for their family, but they had excellent health care, um, excellent benefits, you know, 401ks. And, and most of them, you know, in the heyday, 100% medical coverage, you know, now that's unheard of. Now, you know, you don't, not only do you barely, you're lucky if you have 80-20, but most people are paying a percentage of that premium. Yep. In addition, you know, to, to those benefits, there were just so many other perks, you know, that were affiliated with people in the mining industry. Massey Energy, for instance, we used to have Christmas parties and summer outings and, and, you know, there were always, you know, appreciation gifts that were coming from all different directions. And, and, you know, it, it made, it made everyone affiliated with those companies feel such a sense of unity. And, and, you know, in addition to the fact that, you know, we're powering the nation. The pride. Yeah. Lights on. And, and so it just, it instilled such a sense of pride, you know, uh, just all throughout the coal, whether you were affiliated with the coal industry or not, and have just, you know, been turned upside down now. And, and we've gone from that sense of pride to, you know, a sense of desperation and, and, you know, really trying to find ourselves in terms of, you know, what, what a post coal economy even looks like. 
that's my next question. Yeah, what do you think? What's the new economy look look like? Where where are you feeling hopeful? You know, fortunately for us, you know, we're positioned with a lot more opportunity than some of our other coal-producing neighbors are because we formed and forged those really successful public-private partnerships. We have, you know, the Air Transportation Park that has um, over 300 acres of developable property around it. We've just recently, last July, finished the water extension there and are getting ready to submit a new EDA application for sewer and completion of the access road. And, and um, in concert with that, we're also, we've uh, contracted with an engineering company and an airport consultant to help us identify, you know, what some potentially aviation and aerospace manufacturing opportunities could be there at the airport, given, you know, the assets that we have here in terms of, you know, the the skill sets of displaced miners are very conducive, you know, for aviation manufacturing and aerospace manufacturing. And, you know, we're working in concert with, um, you know, community college and, and the local high school, which now also has some aerospace and aviation curriculums there. Um, so we're trying to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together to really foster the development of new industry sectors, such as, you know, that that revolve around the airport. But, you know, we also are, are cognizant of the fact that you know, at the Harless Industrial Park, where we have several large tracts of land that are available and that industrial park is, you know, it's an existing park. And so we're confident that, you know, there's a, with, with you know, with the country trying to reshore a lot of manufacturing opportunities and, you know, to make more products in the United States, we feel like we're really well positioned, you know, with, with an available workforce that has, you know, some some valuable skill sets, uh, critical thinking skills. Work Coal miners have an incredible work ethic, uh, as you well know, Brandon, in, in all of the ones that you've dealt with through your social enterprises. Um, but, you know, large, large pieces of land, workforce skills, an available workforce, affordable energy. You know, we have all of the pieces of the puzzle, I think. The only thing that we really lack is just you know, proximity to um, ports. Uh, we don't really have close proximity, you know, to the intermodal facility in Wayne County, you know, which is up in the air right now. And and then, you know, the, the next available port, you know, would be the um, probably on the on the river there in Huntington or or in Kanawha County. So that kind of that gets in the way a lot of times of our of our ability to attract large you know, 500 employee manufacturers that need to get their product out of here quickly. But but I think that we still can target mid-size manufacturers. And, and we've talked to several, you know, that have shown some interest there. So, you know, manufacturing of several different types. But we also are very cognizant of the fact that, you know, a, a successful and sustainable economy is is built from the ground up through small business. And yeah. We have not done um, as good of a job, you know, for years in supporting and fostering small business growth as we should have. But, you know, looking back, there really wasn't an opportunity. People were not interested in being entrepreneurs because they were interested in those high paying coal mining jobs. It sort of had to be a culture shift. Yeah. And, and so trying now to encourage people to take advantage, especially in the tourism industry. You know, the Hatfield McCoy Trails has been a godsend to all of Southern West Virginia 
Um, because there are so many, not only are we having, you know, these tens of thousands of people that are coming in here, you know, three or four times a year to ride the trails, but they need lodging. They are looking for different types of mom and pop restaurants. They want other recreational opportunities. And so we've really been focused on growing that tourism sector for the last five or seven years. And, and we're having some luck with it, but we're also having some struggles with it because, you know, people who don't have a college background, people who've come straight out of coal mining, they're risk averse. They don't want to take the risk, you know, in, in becoming a business owner. They want to know that every two weeks or every week that paycheck's going to be there and that somebody else is covering their insurance costs and, you know, making sure they've got a retirement account that's growing. And so we've worked, you know, pretty diligently in trying to mitigate a lot of those obstacles. Access to capital is also an issue that precludes people from becoming successful entrepreneurs and workforce training. So, you know, the, the the projects that we've done with Coalfield Development have been critically instrumental in not only convincing people, you know, that they have untapped, you know, skill sets and, and that they to really be growing, um, you know, both professionally and personally. And I think that the work that Coalfield has done, you know, here in Mingo County and, and in your entire footprint has been really instrumental in in helping us transition, you know, away from, you know, just a real, what we used to call an economic monoculture. Hmm. Leisha, I want to, um, your work, your work is in, incredible. Uh, the facets to it, the, the scale of it. Um, so just you as a leader, as we sort of come to our, our close here, a couple minutes to go, I want to go back to your grandmother. I, um, I hadn't heard about her. We've had a lot of great conversations. Could you just tell me a little bit more about her, what, how you would spend time together, how she shaped you. And then I want to build towards your daughter, you know, is just an incredible human being about to have a PhD in mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. Clearly you've done some things right there, but also just you as a, as a, a woman leader in the economic development space, which is mostly, let's just be honest. It's a, it's traditionally been a male boardroom smoke room type sort of setting but you you know you've excelled a, a, above and beyond and so that legacy of of strong appalachian women uh just tell me how your grandmother started that and how you've carried that forward you know she only had a fourth grade education brandon and mm. um came from a family of about 15 children and she was somewhere in the middle there and she, of course, you know, had to become real instrumental in helping to raise her younger siblings. And so she got married at an early age. She was from Wayne County. Um, I didn't get to know a lot of her family as we were growing up because transportation issues, you know, really precluded us from spending a lot of time with them. So we and my dad was an only child. So we came from a really, really small family unit. And and once we moved down there to Lenore, where she was, it was after my grandfather had passed away. So my sister and I and my dad and my mother, we just became her whole world. And and so she gardened um, when she was when she, when my grandfather worked for um, Island Creek, they had they lived over there on what they called 22 Holden. And 
you know, they had coal camps then. And so my grandmother was one of those coal miners' wives who gardened always, and she was always cooking for everyone in the coal camp. And so she continued doing all of those things for, she just was such a, she gave and gave and gave of herself her whole entire life. She never, the only job that she ever had was delivering groceries for one, a small grocery store down in Lenore. And, and when, once we moved to Lenore and that was getting in the way of the time that she wanted to spend with us, she even stopped doing that. And so the time that I would spend with her, you know, was spent, you know, just her teaching us how to, we'd bake and we'd cook and we'd sew. And she would teach us, you know, the things that little girls just knew that their grandmothers were the best at doing. And, and, but all along the way, you know, during the times when my mom and dad were at work and we'd spend so much time with her, she just, she insisted that we know, you know, how important it was to, you know, to love everyone and to love everyone unconditionally. There was nothing in this world that we could have ever done that would have changed the way that she loved us. And, and there was also nothing in this world that she wouldn't have done for us. And so, you know, when I, when I lost her, it was an incredible, you know, transition for me in my adult life. I was fortunate enough to have had her in my life for 40 years, though. I was 40 when she passed away. And, and so, my daughter was already, you know, 10 years old by then. And it was just, it has always been important to me to instill that, you know, that same belief system in, in Kristen, my daughter. And, and because she's an only child, it was really easy to do, you know. And, and of course, you know, she got to, to live under the tutelage of my grandmother for quite some time, too. And, and herself has a lot of good memories of her. And, and so, you know, I was able to just pour so much energy into her because she was our only one. And, 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 you know, she never really wanted to be in large friend circles. So we've just been a real small family unit. You know, I come from a small family and I'm, I'm, I'm married into a somewhat of a small family and our family unit has just remained sort of small. And so We've been so incredibly close, Kristen and Ronnie and I have, you know, we we just got back from vacation. She's married now and and her husband is like, he's like the son that we never had. And so um, we just got back from a, our family vacation, which still includes her and it will always include her as long as we're able to do that. And, you know, Ronnie and I have just tried to instill those same values of, you know, selflessness and work ethic and, and, you know, tried to encourage her to be her very best. And we could not have asked, you know, for her to have given any more to her, you know, her college um, accomplishments. I mean, she just, she, it, I, you know, I, I try not to sound boastful when I talk about her, but she's just, she's surpassed all expectations that we could have ever had for her. And she makes me. And that's why we have hope for the future of Appalachia. I mean, we clearly, we've had tough times. Clearly our world's been turned upside down, but the, the, the smarts, the know-how, the, the grit, the creativity, the ingenuity, we, we've got it. And, and we, it's important that, you know, that we harness uh, all of that and, and keep it here. You know, yeah. Mingo County, uh, we've lost a, a significant amount of population as has the entire state, you know, with the transition away from coal, but I think it's incumbent upon leaders like you and I, you know, to and, 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 you know, what Generation West Virginia is doing and Stephanie Tyree and 
you know, so many others, it's incumbent upon all of us to, to really harness, you know, the talent that we have and encourage these younger generations to stay here and to make the commitment that we've made, um, you know, to West Virginia. I mean, times are really tough right now in economic development. It is the hardest thing in the world, you know, to effect positive change right now, but I'm not quitting and I'm not giving up. And, you know, uh, JD's wife, Jenna, she's, she's a pioneer too. I'm so proud, you know, that, that women like her and Christy Laxton and Chris Mitchell and, uh, you know, there are so many of us who are, you know, taking that step and wanting to forge, you know, pathways of meaningful employment for women in leadership and in government. And Kristen feels the same way, you know, in engineering. She's she's done a lot of um, sort of teaching. She's done a lot of like uh, she worked for NASA to do to go into middle schools a couple of years ago and and talk about careers for women in aerospace and engineering and and all STEM technologies. And and I just think it's important that you know we always embrace that diversity so that we're not you know um, losing not only our identity but the vision that I think that we as women can bring to to West Virginia. Leisha, thank you for for everything that you do, for the passion and the kindness that you do it with. And I'm honored to be a colleague and I'm proud of what we've gotten done. And I can't wait to see how much more is on the horizon. Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate you so much. All right. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development at the West Edge Factory in Huntington, West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for up-to-date information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.